0: all this, or have already a goal. But I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it. But one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward. In Christ Jesus, this is the word of the Lord. Heavenly Father, please bless your servant Robin as he delivers your message to us. Open our ears so we can hear it and open our hearts so we can understand it. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. Over 40 years ago, uh, Alex Haley published a book by the name of Roots. Anybody here read Roots? One or two people? Yeah. So it's the story of seven generations of African-Americans, uh, an African-American family, his own, his own family, from capture and slavery in Africa in the 1700s to himself in the U.S. in the 1970s. One result of that book was that not only African-Americans, but um, a large percentage of people in the West started to take more of an interest in their own family histories. And now you see all these websites, genealogy sites and stuff like that, so you can trace your own family history. Although we like to think that we all start off with a clean sheet. When we're born and we can make our own way in the in, in the world. The reality is that our past has a profound effect upon us. Where you're born, what your parents did, how you grew up, they all have a significant influence on your on our lives. As Westerners, we like to think that um Each of us likes to think that our own country gives the best opportunity to make it in the world. If you like to escape our past, I looked up some data before I, um, as I was preparing this message, and but the data suggests that even amongst Western countries, uh, the place where it's easiest to to escape your past is actually Scandinavia. Surprise, surprise. Um, The hardest are Hungary and Germany, and the UK and the US, Canada kind of come somewhere in the middle. Uh, there's a documentary series that some some of you might have heard of um, by the director by the name of Michael Apted. He began with a group of um, children in the 1960s at the age of seven. And he made a documentary called Seven Up. And so he had, you know... uh, Kids from very wealthy backgrounds and kids from really poor backgrounds. Uh, and so the difference, even at that age, was apparent because you're talking to the seven-year-olds. These are seven-year-olds, you know, who are in private schools and they don't, you know, they, he asked them what their, you know, what, what their future looks like. And they already know which private high school they're going to and then which university they're going to at the age of seven. And he asks another child from the other end of the social scale if he's ever thought about going to university. And his answer is, what's university? This year, they've made 63 up. Every seven years since the 1960s, they have made, they've gone back to the same group of kids. And asked them, you know, and done a, done a doc- documentary on them, seeing where they're at now, what they're doing, all that kind of stuff. Um, this year they made sixty-three up. Roger Ebert, the film critic, has described this series as the noblest project in cinema history. Perhaps my interest in this in this series um, is particularly high because I turned sixty-three this year, so this cohort of kids that he's interviewing that now adults some of them have passed away um this is my cohort and it's actually a little depressing because the the premise for uh, back in the 60s the premise for the for the series was the the saying give me a child until he is seven and i will give you the man and it's actually quite depressing how how strongly that works you look at somebody when they're seven years old and you can pretty much predict where they're going to end up. Um, so history is a strong predictor. It matters. The past matters. It can have a huge influence on the present. But our passage this morning tells us that even if our past has a huge influence on our present. It doesn't have to be what determines our future. In the middle of Philippians, Paul is actually taking a swipe at a group of leaders in the early church who are putting far too much emphasis on the past and not enough of the present. They were saying that in order to be saved, non-Jews had to become Jews. The only way to be part of God's plan was to buy into the past and the history of the Jews in every way, including keeping the law and getting circumcised. So that would have been you know, a little bit of a bump for you know, evangelism. It's great that you've accepted Jesus as your Lord and Savior. Now, there's just this matter of some minor surgery and then you're in. But this isn't some kind of sour grapes from Paul. It's not that Paul didn't have reason to be proud of his past. He did. Because in Philippians 3, verses 5 to 6, he lays out his own version of roots. Since his opponents are pushing circumcision, that's where he starts. He says, he was circumcised on the eighth day. As an eight-day-old baby, his parents brought him to the rabbi to be circumcised. He was off the people of Israel. He wasn't a convert to Judaism. He was born into it. And just to prove it, he reminds them that he's off the tribe of Benjamin. Not a big tribe, but a, but a proud one. Saul, Israel's first king, was a Benjamite. And that's who Paul is named after. My mother's maiden name was Buchan. And there's a whole section of Scotland called the Buchan Shoulder. That's this bit that sticks out into the North Sea, north of Uh, Aberdeen. That much I knew. What I didn't realize was that John Buchan, the author of 39 Steps. Anybody here read 39 Steps? Classic. One of the very earliest spy thrillers. Um, 39 Steps. So John Buchan, who wrote that, actually also served as the Governor General of Canada in the late 30s and early 40s. And he established Um, the Governor General's Prize for Literature, which is like the premier prize for literature in Canada. So it doesn't really matter if I'm not directly related to him because Scotland, like Israel, was a tribal society for a very long time. And so just the fact that he has the same surname as my mother is enough for me to claim him as a member of my tribe. And that's the same for Paul. He links himself into the tribe of Benjamin. That's his tribe. And finally, he says he's a Hebrew of Hebrews. Now, that probably meant that his family spoke Hebrew or at least Aramaic at home, not Greek like most of the first century Jews in the diaspora outside of of Israel. And that's just his ethnic background. Then he piles on his uh, religious background He says, in regard to the law, he was a Pharisee. He had totally committed his life to not only keeping God's rules for living that are found in the Old Testament, but a whole bunch of other rules too, to make sure that they didn't even come near to breaking God's rules. There's this idea of putting a a hedge around the law. So if you've got a law that says, don't do this, then you have another law. You make your own rules, so you don't even get close enough to break the rules, right? Right. as a result of that commitment, he'd seen the church as a threat. And so, as he says, he persecuted the church. And in all of this, he was faultless. Some of our Bibles um, refer to that as legalistic righteousness. That's probably too negative a translation. Righteousness according to the law is a good thing. Paul was a good, God-fearing, law-abiding Jew. That's not a bad thing. So what's your heritage? This is a really diverse group here. and I'm sure if we took some time, we could find some very interesting stories. What's your ethnic heritage? What's your religious heritage? When I was pursuing ordination back in Canada, I had to write up an ordination statement which apart from you know being an outline of my personal theology that also included a whole bunch of other things including a short biography. Now a number of my colleagues and classmates were also pursuing ordination at the same time. And I think I must have gone to five or six ordination councils in the space of a couple of years. So I read their ordination statements too. And I noticed an interesting similarity in the stories that people told. Now, I don't mean any disrespect to these guys, because a lot of them, men and women, because many of them are my friends as well as my colleagues. But I think that almost all of them, in their ordination statements, told stories of growing up in loving homes, loving Christian homes, praying to receive Jesus, somewhere between the ages of 5 and 10, and then being part of the church youth group, and so on. I think at least half of them were the sons or daughters of pastors. I was something of an outlier. People of the congregation know some of my history, that uh, I came to faith in my teens from a very rough and difficult background. Paul not only had an impeccable ethnic heritage. Like my colleagues back in Canada, he had a, an impeccable religious heritage too. His roots went deep. But he set it all aside. He says, but whatever was to my prophet, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. It's not that he was ashamed of being Jewish. He makes that clear in Romans 3. He says, what advantage then is there in being a Jew? Or what value is in circumcision? And he says, much in every way. They have been entrusted with the very words of God. So it's not that he thinks the Old Testament law is worthless. He describes it as the very words of God. What he's saying is that all that good stuff doesn't amount to a hill of beans compared to knowing Jesus Christ as his Savior. it's very hard for me living where I do and looking out the window at the Mediterranean and not having a sailboat because I'm a sailor and it's like, it's a, it's a, it's a great struggle for me. Uh, um, But I want you to imagine that you're out on the Mediterranean in a boat. Maybe you've retired, sold your house, bought a big sailboat. I was actually looking online at a really nice thirty-three-foot catch, just like, just, just like some of you know, Linford, who has it's, 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 it's a sister ship to Linford's boat. It's a beautiful boat. Anyway, um, I'm not going to, you know, no, we, I'm not pursuing that. But anyway, um, so imagine you've bought one of these lovely cruising boats, and you're out there. And one day a storm comes up. This time of year, you know, this time of year that Paul says you shouldn't be sailing on the on the eastern Mediterranean. We all know why, right? These are horrible storms we have. So the boat's having a hard time, and you realize that you're going to need to, as they say, lighten ship if you're going to survive. So you start throwing stuff overboard. You know, you throw over all, throw over your, all your books. That'd be hard for me, getting rid of the books. All your extra clothes, your crockery, cutlery, everything that you've saved to travel the world with in your inter- retirement. It all goes over the side. Not because those things suddenly become less valuable. It's just that in comparison with the value of saving your life, they've become worthless. As Paul would say, you count them as a loss, as a hindrance, not a help. That's how we should view any natural advantages we have. If we put our faith in them, they become hindrances, not helps. And it's not just the good stuff. He expands it to everything. He says, What is more, I consider everything a loss compared with the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I might gain Christ. He considers it all good, bad, indifferent. To be To be what? Well, the translation we have here says garbage. It's probably not what Paul meant. The Greek word is skubala. And while it can just mean the kind of stuff that you throw in a bin, it's more likely he's actually using deliberately using a vulgar word that also means excrement, feces, crap. Some of the early church fathers found this word so embarrassing That they tried to soften the meaning. And our English translations do the same. But Paul really is saying that, compared with knowing Jesus Christ as Lord, everything, everything else is just a pile of whatever. Trained in the Old Testament at an early age, throw it on the pile. All his religious heritage on the pile. His ethnic heritage that goes on the pile too. The fact that he persecuted on the p- the church that goes there too. Worthless, worthless, compared with knowing Christ. Being a cross-cultural worker that goes on the pile. Being called to ministry that goes on the pile. It's worthless compared with knowing Christ. It's just a pile of scuba. All of this is worthless because it doesn't even begin to compare with knowing Christ Jesus as my Lord, of being found in him. And how do we get to be in him? Well, it isn't by having a righteousness of my own, as Paul says. He says, not because I have a righteousness of my own. If you or I can say that we are in Christ, that he is our Lord and Savior, It isn't because of anything in our past, good or bad. It's simply through faith in Christ, by putting our trust in him and taking him at his word, that if we give our lives over to him, he will bring us into a new relationship with Christ, with God. And Paul calls that the righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. Our future lies not in our past but in knowing Christ and experiencing his presence today. Listen to the passion in verse 10. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of of sharing in his sufferings becoming like him in his death and so somehow to attain to the resurrection from the dead. Now there's a man who knows what he wants out of life. If someone were to ask you what you wanted from life, what you wanted from the coming year, what would your response be? To be a success? To be a good mom or dad? One of the things about preaching is that as you prepare a message, you end up preaching it to yourself multiple times as you go over it and edit it and all that kind of stuff. And I've been reflecting on this if someone asked me what I want from my life, would this be my answer? I think I've usually answered these kinds of questions in terms of what I want for the church or the ministry that I'm involved in at the time or how I want my life to count for something in the lives of others. And those aren't bad things. But I think Paul would still count them as scubula compared with the goal of knowing Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow to attain to the resurrection from the dead. He wants to know Christ in the power of his resurrection. He wants to know Christ as alive and at work in him to save him from himself, to transform him from bad to good. To move him forward into a life of service to others. To open up that newness of life in the Spirit. He wants to experience Christ already resurrecting him from death to sin. Today, now. It's on the basis of that that verse 11 makes sense. Hoping for the resurrection from the dead. I want that too. And in the meantime, just as Christ suffered and died to achieve that resurrection for Paul and for all of us, the path of our discipleship still involves sharing in Christ's suffering and becoming like him in his death. We daily have to make the effects of Jesus' life effective in our lives. It doesn't just happen. We have to constantly choose to consider ourselves in fact dead to sin and alive to God Paul talks about Paul talks about being a living sacrifice in Romans 12 and as my one of my mentors used to always say the only problem with living sacrifices is they keep trying to crawl off the altar <laughs> and that's very that's true for us each one of us it's not you know following Christ is not a one-time done deal. It's a daily choice to get up in the morning and to choose today to follow Christ, to walk our lives out for him, not for ourselves, saying no to our selfish desires and saying yes to Jesus. Because he calls us to take up our cross daily and follow him as servants of God. And for the good of others. Now, that's some pretty heavy theology. I think actually Paul realizes that because in verse 12, the whole tone changes. He goes, Not that I've already obtained all this or have already been made perfect. He's saying, Hey guys, don't be thinking that I've arrived and I'm talking down to you here. This is my goal, this is where I'm going. It's not that I've arrived. This is what I'm aiming for. I'm like an athlete in a race. He says, I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it. But one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining to what is ahead, I press on towards the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. A large part of, of the reason that Paul can consider all that stuff that he listed as garbage is that he's not actually looking at it. He's not looking at it. It's behind him, and he's not looking that way. He's looking forwards. Forgetting what's behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on towards the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. Living life as a Christian. It's like riding a bike. Best done forwards, not backwards. You know what happens when you look behind you when you're riding a bike? You can quickly lose your balance and your direction. And it's even worse if you do it um, when you're uh, riding with no hands. Uh, Jason isn't here, so I can tell the story about him. (laughs) It's my son. When my son was, we 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 used to live in Pakistan, and um, uh, my son would ride all over Peshawar uh, on his bike and hang out with his friends. And um, one time they were riding riding down the main the main street of the the, the university town where we lived, and um, he and his he and his friend his friend took his hands off the handlebars. And so Jason took his hands off his handlebars, and everything was going fine until Jason looked behind him. And if you look behind you when you're riding without your hands on the handlebars, you lose control of the bike, and he did. Um, now, what you need to realise is that in Pakistan, down the side of down the side of most of the the, the roads, there are things called deweys, <laughs> which are deep, open uh, water. Yeah, they're 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 not sewers quite, but they are deep and muddy and black, smelly mud in the bottom. And uh, so Jason lost control and went headfirst into the Dewey. I mean, the Dewey's about this big. There's black, smelly mud at the bottom. For a long time afterwards, we called called him Jason the Dewey diver. life as a christian is best lived looking forwards not backwards it's only as you look forward and you keep your eyes focused on jesus that you maintain your balance and your sense of direction if you start looking back at you know whether it's good or bad if you take your eyes off jesus it will you'll start doing this in your life and you're you're liable to lose control as we come to the end of 2019 it's time to leave stuff behind you know we we often you know make new year's resolutions so in a few days a bunch of us will probably be making new year's resolutions Um, I've got a couple in mind myself and those are good but it's also good just to leave, leave the old year behind. Whatever happened in it, whether it was good or bad, it's history now. It may have an effect on you going forward, but the less you look at it, the less effect it's going to have on you. Make your goal for 2020 to know Christ. Not just to know more about him, to go to more Bible studies, read more books, heaven forbid, listen to more sermons. Those are all good things. But to know him, to experience his presence in your life as you submit your ways to him, as you allow him to change you day by day into the person that he he wants you to become. That may not be the person that you want to become. But part of walking with Jesus is allowing our wills to come into line with his will for what our life is. I'll do the same. Seek to know Jesus in this coming year. And perhaps we can exchange notes observations on how that's going along the way as a congregation. So as we approach this new year, remember this. It doesn't matter if your past is something that you're proud of or something that you're ashamed of. It's the past. Leave it there. The key to your future Lies in knowing Christ in the present. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, it's easy for me to stand up here and say these words, but I pray for your grace for myself personally and for each person in this room, that we truly would be people who seek to know you, to know you better, to experience your presence in our lives, to be people who reflect your character into the world. I know for some of us, this has been a good year, And for others, this has been a bad year, Lord. Give us the grace, each one of us, to put it behind us and to walk with you into this coming year. Lord, I pray that as a congregation, we would also walk into the new year in newness of life with you as a community. We don't know what you have for us, Lord. We don't know what the new year holds, but we know it's in your hand. And we ask, Lord, that we would have the grace to walk into it with you, holding your hand. In your name we pray. Amen.